Chapter the Sixth of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. To Martial Music. A second time Jabez and Ellen saw each other ere the day was out. She had rushed home with eager feet and eyes through back streets to startle Mrs. Chadwick, her newly married sister, Mrs. Ashton, and a bevy of friends with the confident assurance that the review would be at sale, and to confirm it by a display of the plain shilling, which an ossifer had given her. New Cross, where the volunteers assembled, was not then a misnomer. A market cross occupied the centre space between the four wide thoroughfares, of which Oldham Street is one, and the open area was considerable. The trumpets bray, the tramp of troops were heard long before the brilliant cavalcade was set in motion, and every window, every house in Oldham Street, all good private residences of the Gower Street stamp, held its quota of heads and eyes, and costumes as brilliant as the eyes. The house of Mr. Chadwick was situated near the lower end, and commanded a good view of the infirmary, its gardens, and pond in Piccadilly. Today, however, the royal party and the volunteers, many of whom had friends looking out for them, were the only prospect worth a thought, and as they marched proudly on to the gayest of gay tunes, kerchiefs waved, heads nodded, and eyes sparkled with delight and pleasure. As the Duke of Gloucester and his suite rode by, their charges prancing to the music, Ellen, mounted on a chair by the window between Mrs. Ashton and her mother, suddenly pointed to an officer in their midst, resplendent with stars and orders, and in an ecstasy of delight screamed out, "Mamma, mamma, that's the gentleman that gave me the shilling! The little treble voice pierced even through the clamorous music. A noble head was bowed, a plumed hat was raised and lowered until it swept the charger's mane. "'Why, child, that is Prince William!' was the simultaneous exclamation, as all the eyes from all the houses across the street were turned in wonderment to see the Chadwicks so distinguished. And Simon, who, still carrying Jabez, was trying to keep pace with the troops, wondered too. Moreover, he recognised the lady and the little girl, though seen but once, for he earned his own living, such as it was, and had been too proud to call on the Chadwicks to say how his daughter fared, lest they should think he sought charity. "'Jabez, lad, sithee, yon's th lady and little lass has brought you home, when you went seeing the soldiers afore.' And Jabez, from his shoulder-perch, looked up at the little bright-eyed brunette, to remember the white frock and pink ribbons he had seen at the bridge-water, but nothing beyond. The man's exclamation and attitude had at the same time attracted Mrs. Chadwick, who, smiling down on him and Jabez, spoke to Ellen, and she, reminded of the little baby who had been saved from drowning in a cradle, looked down, and in the fullness of her new importance, nodded too. The momentary stoppage called forth a loud objurgation as a reminder from Sally Cooper, who was in advance with Matthew, and such of her bigger lads as could step out. And Simon, equally anxious not to lose sight of the royal party, hurried on. But Sailmore is beyond the confines of Lancashire, 
and Simon found the five miles stiff walking, with a child nearly six years old on his shoulders, and Master Jabez had to descend from his seat and trudge on his own feet. This caused them to lag behind their friends, Sally insisting on Matt's keeping up with the soldiers, in order that they might get a good place on the moor, and they were thus separated. Bess had remained at home. Never again could she look on marching troops without a pang. Sale Moor was alive with expectant sightseers. Stands and platforms had been erected for the accommodation of those who could afford and cared to pay. There was a sprinkling of heavy carriages and a crowd of carts, but the mass of spectators were on foot, vehicular locomotion being of very limited capacity. Of these latter were the Coopers and Cleggs, of course. Sally, with the elders of her turbulent brood, had reached the ground in time to be deafened by the score of cannon Lord Wilton's artillery fired as a salute to Princeton. She had planted herself firmly against one of the supports of an elevated platform, where the crowd of hero-worshippers was densest. She was tightly jammed and crushed against the woodwork. But what matter? She had a fine sight of the field, and as she watched the evolutions of the volunteers, congratulated herself and Matthew on having left that crawling Clegg and the brat so far behind. Almost as she spoke, there was a faint crackle, then another, and a yielding of the post against which she leaned. A loud crash, a chorus of shrieks, half drowned by music and musketry, and the whole platform was down with the living freight it had borne, and she was down with it. The fashion, wealth, and beauty of Cheshire and South Lancashire had their representatives amongst that struggling, swooning, writhing, shrieking, groaning mass of humanity, heaped and huddled in indiscriminate confusion, with uptorn seats, posts, and draperies. Strange to say, only one person was killed outright, that is, on the spot, for in its downfall the stand bore with it many of the throng beneath, but of the injured and the shaken, those who went to hospital and home to linger long and die at last, history has kept no record. Amongst these, this story tells of two, two differing in all but sex. Mrs. Aspinall, ever frail and delicate, was borne to her carriage with whole limbs, but insensible. Her husband and their son Lawrence, both uninjured by her side. Physicians were in attendance and never left her until she was safely lodged in her own luxurious chamber, overlooking Ardwick Green, and could be pronounced out of immediate danger. Sally Cooper, with a sprained ankle, a dislocated shoulder, and many internal bruises, was placed in a light cart on a bed of straw procured from a neighbouring farm, with another of the injured, and carried to the Manchester Infirmary to try the skill and the patience of the doctors and nurses. Neither recovered. The unwounded lady, sorely shaken, succumbed to the shock her nervous system had received, and Master Lawrence, already petted and wilful, was left to be still further spoiled by his widowed father and Kitty, his mother's old nurse. Sally, strong of frame and will, impatient of pain and of restraint, was restive under the surgeon's hands, and defeated their efforts to ascertain her injuries. 
she exhausted herself with shrieks and cries, tossed about and disturbed bandages, rejected physic, which she called poison, and soon put her case beyond the cure of the physicians. Too late, she became sensible of her own folly. Then, when recovery was impossible, she repented of many misdeeds, and of none more than her slander of poor Bess. And thus it was. When the mother was taken from the head of Cooper's home, Bess's kind heart yearned to help the disconsolate man and his troop of children. Fortunately, the eldest was a girl of sixteen, and there was a younger girl of ten. Both of these had gone out to work, but now Molly had to stay at home and try and keep all right and tight there. And here Bess came to her aid. Without scolding or brawling, she put the girl into the way of doing things quickly and quietly. She encouraged her to persevere, so that her cleanly mother should detect no eyesores when she came home restored. She tried to persuade the boys to be less refractory, to help not to irritate their sister, and somehow Cooper's home began to miss Sal, much as one misses a whirlwind. The kindness of Bessa Sims was duly reported to the infirmary patient, and at first chafed her sorely. She hated to be under obligations, and to that lass or others. But Bess, leaving her own work, and the loss of an hour meant the loss of an hour's earnings, herself went to see Sally, and such was the influence of her gentle voice and touch that Sally's chagrin imperceptibly wore away. Towards the last she grew delirious, raved of Bess and Tom Hume and forgiveness, and in the short, calm preceding dissolution, confessed to Matt Cooper and the attendant nurse that she had cast a slur on Bess Clegg's good name, had made Tom Hume believe that Simon had taken the lass from Skinner's yard to hide her shame, that everybody in the yard knew that Bess had a child, and that she had bade him inquire for himself. And almost her last word was a hope that Bess would forgive her. Matthew Cooper himself hardly forgave his dead wife. How, therefore, should he carry this confession to Bess and ask her to forgive? He took a medium course, and after a few days' consideration, while they and the rest of the tanners were eating their baggin, a workman's luncheon, so called from the bag it is, or was, usually carried in, sat down beside Simon on a bundle of thick leather and told him as well as he was able. Simon was troubled, but he was not vindictive. He would have been less than a man had he not been bitter against the cruel woman who had causelessly wrecked his good daughter's life. But he was sorry for Matt, and broke out into no revilings. The woman was dead. The ill she had done had been fearfully punished, and neither curses nor reproaches could affect her or undo the mischief. He left his cheese and jannock on the hides untasted, drew his hand across his forehead, and went down to the riverside and across the wooden bridge for a breath of fresh air and a waft of fresh thought. He was only a rugged tanner, but he had a heart within his breast. He had a daughter on his hearth with a great wound in her heart, a blast on her good name, and he was called upon to forgive the author of this mischief. 
Simon had long been used to commune with his own heart. He had built up a wall round it with the leaves of that one book on his bureau, and whenever he was in doubt or difficulty, he read the precepts inscribed upon that wall. He went back to Cooper, whose appetite had been no better than his own. "'Or mun think this hour, Matt, or connot say or forgive your soul or to dash. Who's done that as may never be undone while thee and me's alive, and or connot frame to say as or forgive her, like o' on a sudden, and o' mun think it hour before out be said to our best poor wench. A week elapsed before the subject was broached again. Then Simon spoke to Matthew as they were leaving the tannery yard. Come into th' Queen Anne, he called it Queen, Matt, and have a jill, or summat to say to thee. There was nobody in the tap room. They sat down to their half pint horns of ale. Times were too hard to afford deeper draughts, and Simon said, I've been thinking all this week, and I cannot forgive your sal, gradely like. I'll no put the same temptation i way of our best. Who'd better think Tom's tacken up with some other wench than hath shame o' knowing th' lads turned her up i disgrace? Who's getten our the worst o' trouble, and I'm not going to break her heart outreet and maybe set her again little Jabez into th' bargain? Matthew could but assent to Simon's proposition, but Simon had not said all his say. But I'm not going to sit down with my hands in me lap and that great lump of dirty slutch stickin' to my lass. Your mun help me to find out where Tom Hume's gettin' to, and help to set o'er straight afore o'er forgive your sal, though we'll be dead and gone. We owe my heart, responded Matt, and he gave his huge hand to Simon in token thereof. When the Duke of Gloucester inspected the volunteers at Ardwick on the 30th of September that same year, not one of the people I have linked together witnessed the show. The blinds were down at Mrs. Aspinall's to shut out a sight the like of which had made him a widower, and within the darkened nursery, wilful obstreperous Lawrence fought and kicked and bit at old Kitty, because she kept him within doors, and from the windows at his father's command. There was a christening party in Mosley Street at the Ashtons, at which not only the Chadwicks, but the Reverend Joshua Brooks, who had that day named the infant Augusta, were present. They had selected a public occasion for their private festival. It was a grand affair. Mr. Ashton was a smallware manufacturer in an extensive way of business, his house and warehouse occupying a large block of buildings at the corner of York Street, and the baby Augusta, born the previous month, was a first child, his wife being younger than himself considerably. Miss Ellen, too, was there, her wonderful shilling, through which a hole had been drilled, suspended from her neck like an amulet. Simon and Matt had given up their holiday to fruitless inquiries after Tom Hume, and Jabez, after a stand-up fight with a boy in the yard in defence of his kitten, had come to have his bleeding nose and bruised forehead doctored by Bess, who shed over him the tears long gathering in their fountains for Tom Hume's defection. And somehow, at that stylish christening feast, 
where the baby Augusta was a personage of importance, almost as great as the celebrated Miss Kilman's egg, the orphan Jabez and his fosterers came on the table for discussion along with the dessert. Mrs. Chadwick, Mr. Clough, and Joshua Brooks, concurring in the opinion mooted by the lady, that something should be done to relieve the worthy tanner and his daughter of the cost and trouble of maintaining the boy as he grew older and would want educating. That they should talk of the cost of maintenance when bread was a shilling a loaf was no marvel, but that education should be named as a necessity for one of nobody's children can only be cited as a proof that either the boy's strange introduction to Manchester or Simon's strange generosity had excited an interest in both beyond the common run. Yet that something was vague. The only definite and practicable view of the subject was held by Joshua Brooks, and he kept his opinion to himself. End of chapter the sixth